All right, all right. Hello, hello, everyone. I think we are live uh, and we are in for a treat tonight. Um, welcome, everyone, to tonight's conversation on faith, abolition, and socialism. Uh, this is the launch event of a monthly conversation series, uh, which is sponsored by uh, the Religious Socialism Working Group of DSA, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, tonight's conversation will flow from uh, 7.30 to 8.30, uh, maybe about 8.45 at the latest. Um, and we'll give it just a, a few more moments for, for folks to, to join us and, and file on in virtually uh, into the room. Uh, and again, looking forward to a really great conversation tonight. Uh, I want to share just a bit of backstory. Don't want to take for granted that everybody has a sense of who uh, DSA is and how DSA comes into the space. I just want to share a bit of context for folks. Uh, Democratic Socialists of America is the nation's leading uh, socialist political organization. Uh, and its principal belief, uh, to cut to the chase, is that working people uh, should have a principal role in shaping not only how our economy, but how our society is run on a democratic basis uh, to meet human needs instead of having uh, folks at the top uh, to determine how society is run and to capture the value that working people themselves produce. Uh, DSA's organization uh, tends to happen through campuses and community-based chapters as well as congregations uh, where you have members fighting for everything from legislative and direct action uh, to push ahead non-reformist reforms for working people. And tonight's conversation, and particularly within the kind of DSA family, uh, is led by religious socialism. Uh, and I'm working my way on up to situate uh, my, my dear uh, sister Linda and I. Uh, religious socialism is inspired by this kind of vibrant tradition uh, where people of faith uh, know that charity is not enough, that volunteering is not enough, but that you have to really push for undoing structural racism and push beyond that for a democratic socialist, socialist society so that we can get the kind of wins that our people uh, inherently deserve. And what's exciting about this moment, uh, I hope y'all can see me bursting with pride, is that this is a, uh, a gorgeous mosaic, if I can use the language of uh, a New York City resident, where you have Muslim folks, Jewish folks, Christians, Buddhists, people within the healing and restorative justice spaces, folks in the movement for Black lives, all coming together as a mighty chorus demanding a new economy and a new society. And that demand, in many ways, is, is, is undergirded by a robust spirituality. Uh, and so this moment in many ways has as its antecedent uh, this religious socialism working group, which is founded in the 70s during a law and order era of pushback. Do you hear the law and order era? Because we're in a similar moment now. A law and order era of pushback. I, I see Linda sh shaking her head because we, we know this moment. Pushback against all of the hard earned uh, gains of the civil rights movement and folks like Students for a Democratic Society and many others that we might name. Uh, and it's worth noting that uh, religious socialism in, in particular uh, was founded by folks like uh, John Cord and other uh, women and folks who helped to uh, really try to organize a religious response alongside some of the other community responses of the day. Uh, and Michael Harrington, uh, who founded, uh, was a co-founder of what was then the uh, Democratic Socialist uh, Organizing Committee uh, himself in some ways was, or, uh, was kind of inspired by the kind of Catholic left tradition 
uh, the best of, of what that tradition represents. Uh, so that's just some of the rich history that kind of surrounds and grounds us for tonight. And I'm excited to be uh, juxtaposed and joined by my, my dear sister, a courageous leader in the movement for justice, Linda Sarsour. Uh, good to see you, Linda. Good to see uh, you, Fred. Linda comes to us as the, the co-founder of Until Freedom, uh, which is a, so I think she even has on the sweatshirt, if, if I'm not mistaken. There yeah, it is. I'm repping my people. Rip, rip, rip hard. Uh, it's a social justice org rooted in the leadership of folks of color uh, to address comprehensively systemic and racial injustice. Uh, Linda's also the co-organizer of the Women's March and the author of, uh, let me know if I get this right, We Are Not Meant to Be Bystanders, a memoir. Almost. We are not here to be bystanders. There it is. Get, get me right. Get me right. We're not here to be bystanders. Uh, it's a memoir of love and resistance. Uh, and this week, uh, in fact, Linda was down in Kentucky uh, along with so many here. others. I from Louisville, Kentucky. I'm still you're here. You're still there. My goodness. Uh, well, thank you so much. I, uh, I didn't leave. I got to stay and finish my fight. My, 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 my. Understood. Until freedom, right? Until freedom. That's right. That's it. That's it. Uh, and let me just say a, a, a few words about myself. Um, I'm Reverend Angie Wilkes um, and come to this conversation with just a, a, a few hats. Um, I serve as the co-pastor of the Double Love Experience Church in Brooklyn, New York. Um, also uh, work as a policy director, a writer, uh, and a proud, proud member of the Religious Socialism uh, Working Group. Uh, so let's hop right on into the conversation. Um, there's a great article, Linda, in the New York Times Sunday Review on how social movements uh, are making connections between defunding the police, canceling rent, and pushing for a Green New Deal. And though that article didn't explicitly state it, the, the implication is that abolition is not only about police, uh, but about abolishing capitalism and this system of resource extraction, uh, which harms ecosystems and, and people. So, the question I uh, want us to grapple with uh, to, to get going is how might we connect the dots between uh, the conversation around police abolition and abolishing an exploitative economy? So first of all, thank you all and, and uh, good evening to all of my socialist family that's on here, my DSA family. Very proud to be a dues paying member of, of DSA and watching all the wins. I don't know if folks heard, but we just got a new a DSA win today. Um, Assemblywoman Marcella has beat a uh, longtime uh, incumbent Assemblyman Felix Ortiz. And if it wasn't for the work of DSA members um, across New York City, that would not happen. So that's just some great news to start with. Um, you know, uh, Rev, I've been doing this work for a really long time and I never really quite understood what ideology I was following. I didn't know how I came to this work and how I even got into the Democratic Socialists of America. But I realized um, recently, only maybe in the last maybe seven years that I was a socialist myself. Hmm. Looking at all the, even the communities that I come from and the communities that I organize with, which are 99% predominantly, as you know, uh, immigrant communities, refugee communities. I come from an immigrant community. I am a daughter of immigrants. And also, as you know, um, someone who has been a close ally of black communities. And those are the people that I'm around every single day. And yeah. watch the ways in which the economy works and really following the money on every single issue, right? It's not just about policing in this country. It's also about education and the ways in which the system is set up 
really to hold our communities down, to hold poor and working class people down. The, the entire, like as people say, the whole system is guilty as hell and it is because we do live in a capitalist society. So mm-hmm. if you think about something as simple as thinking about education and they say, why do some kids have this and some kids don't have this? Our education system is set up on this idea that in a district, if someone, if, if, if a district is rich and are paying more taxes, their kids get more funding allocated to their school. So if my child lives in a poor working class community, those kids have to have a substandard education because my family's poor or because the people who live in my community are poor. When it comes to even policing in this country, when we look at the fact that we even have a private prison system here, the fact that somebody sits home or sits in an in a, in a, in a office, in a fancy office somewhere in some high tower, who's yeah. profiting off of the incarceration of, of, of people. So for, uh, from e- even when you think about our healthcare system, I am appalled that there are still people who call themselves liberals or call themselves, quote, progressives, and don't support the idea that healthcare is in fact a human right, that all of us deserve healthcare. If, you, if people who cannot even look into our healthcare system and see the very clear um, uh, black uh, infant mortality rate and the way in which we even mm-hmm. give access to healthcare. I mean, our system is exploitative from top to, to the bottom, bottom, from the left yeah, to the yeah. right. And, it's, and, it, and, and we have to address it and talk about the ways in which it's profitable. Racism is profitable in America. That's the bottom line, right? So in order for us to eradicate racism, we have to organize the, in the framework of, 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 of ending capitalism. Because racism is profitable. It's not about whether it's morally wrong. You can't fight that racism is morally wrong. That's obvious to me. But we have to make racism not profitable. And that's the only way that we will eradicate racism. And that means we all have to be committed to a fight to end capitalism. Absolutely, absolutely. Love the linkages that that you're making there. Just want to build on on that healthcare point a bit. You know, uh, one of the um, quotes that... um, your point about healthcare as a human right reminds me of is, is uh, Reverend Martin Luther King used to make the point that of, of all the inequalities uh, that we can point to, uh, inequitable access to healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. Uh, and the fact that uh, Medicare for All has required such uh, intense political organizing is as understandable given the forces that profit from Medicare, uh, that profit rather from our privately run healthcare system as it is lamentable, uh, because healthcare injustice uh, just really ought not exist full stop. Um, so I want to want to switch gears a bit and talk a little bit uh, more about this nexus of faith, abolition, and socialism. And want to ground us here. Uh, there's a substantial uptick in multi-faith activism around abolition. Uh, I'm thinking of groups like, uh, I believe they're based in Chicago, Muslims for Abolition, which runs the Believer's Bailout, focusing on pretrial uh, incarceration and dealing with folks who are in ICE custody. Uh, You also have Christian, Buddhist, and Jewish organizations pushing the same, but in many ways, Muslims for Abolition is is out front. And their call is not just for a new way of doing safety, uh, but of organizing society on a different basis altogether. So I'm wondering if you can speak a bit about how uh, faith plays a role in this wider work of abolition, whether or not folks are coming from ethical traditions or faith traditions. And then what does that have to do with this uh, dismantling profit-driven uh, systems that you talked about? Absolutely. Um, Muslims for Abolition um, is a group of Muslims, Black Muslims, who have been leading our larger, more diverse Muslim community on this pathway towards 
abolition. And a lot of times when people talk about Muslims and particularly in the movement, they perceive yeah. people like me. They think Muslim, they think someone that looks like Linda. But what I want people to also understand is that one third of our Muslim American community in the United States of America is African American. So although I am not black, my faith, my American Islam comes from the lineage of enslaved Africans who were forced here from Africa, many of yeah. them are Muslims. And those folks, as you know, many of them, about 30% of enslaved Africans were Muslims. And some of them were forced into conversions under the white Christian slave masters. And so I wanted to pay homage that my immigrant family, my father who came here in the 1970s after the 1967 war, um, he, was able to come to America and get off an airplane and be like, assalamu alaikum, show me where the mosque is at. Because African-American Muslims also sacrificed for my family. And so yeah. the question comes really, yes, I, I believe that Islam in of itself is an inherently abolitionist, uh, has an abolitionist framework, right? Um, but I also do believe that the injection of the work around abolition does come from a black tradition. Um, and it comes from... Um, uh, from our community led by black Muslims. And so the idea around believers bailout also is that many, there's a very large significant percentage of folks in prison who convert to Islam. It's one of the fastest growing populations in our, in our incarceration system. So making sure that, for example, during the month of Ramadan, if people are sitting on pretrial, that we are getting them out to spend Ramadan with their families, to spend the holy high, holy holidays with their families. So that's kind of some of the concepts around Believer's Bailout um, and hopefully to, to support them long term so we could just keep getting people out all the time. So it's not just around high, holy holidays or any specific issue about that. So for me in our community, I want people to know that that work is being led by um, Black Muslims. You know, it's, it's it, our communities, the communities that I come from, um, Rev, are immigrant communities. You know, they um, come to America and a lot of them embrace the kind of uh, framework that America has set up, you know, and also as yeah. people who oftentimes have been victim to hate crimes and victim to other forms of crimes, as you know, they start to believe in this American framework of punishment, um, this idea of jails, this idea of, um, um, you know, we have to put people away and cage them up when they do bad. And I think when we look at, you know, when we really start going deeply down into our faith uh, traditions as a Muslim, you know, our, when we say God and Allah, many people also, when you hear Allah, Allah just means God in English. Yep. I mean, in Arabic, it's in Arabic. Yep. So, and I believe, um, you know, I believe in the Abrahamic God, the God of Jews and the God of Christians. And so when we, our God, Allah has 99 names and 99 names, the most forgiving the most loving, the most redemptive. I mean, we call can, the role, call the role, call the role, most compassionate, the most beneficent. Like I could go on here for days and days. So I always say to people in our community, when I talk about abolition, if Allah is the most compassionate, if Allah is the most committed, if, uh, excuse me, the most compassionate, if Allah is the most forgiving, if Allah is the most redemptive, how are you in the business of punishing people and acting as judge and juror and executioner if you are claiming that your God is the most forgiving? And so I believe that the going back to our original mm -hmm. frameworks about forgiveness, about restorative justice, these are concepts in all of our faith, faith traditions. And that really has helped us smooth out and, and, and take people on a journey. And to be clear, I know, and I, the type of organizer that I am, Andrew, is I want to pe meet people where they're at. Now, I'm yeah. an, I want to say abolish the police. I don't want to see a police officer in sight. But I also am rooted in a reality. And you have mm -hmm. to put people on Let's a journey. Let's go there. 
you got to take people on a journey. And one of the things that I always say to my friends in the DSA in particular, and there's a lot of hardcore folks in the DSA, they out here like burn it all down, shut it all down. And I say to people, in order for us to expand our movements, to bring in more people of faith, to bring in more folks who are, you know, on the journey and about to be all the way on our side, we got to meet people where they're at. So for me, you know, being able to explain and say that defund the police department, talking to Muslims about yeah. defund the police department and saying for me, what that means is in this moment, I don't, I didn't say 50 years from now, I'm talking about right now. Yeah, it, today. It, decreasing the budgets of the of the of our police departments and reallocating that money to healthcare, to education to infrastructure to transportation you know what not a muslim that i've spoken to was like nah linda i ain't with that that only makes yeah. no sense to me but we have to be really clear that our the ways in which we organize is accessible to people of faith because people of faith will put you out andrew if you start saying some stuff and you pray, my, my, my. i don't know what you're talking about Linda. i don't know what you're talking about they're not going to give you the pulpit or the member they're not going to let you talk to the yeah, 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 yeah. they're not going to let you come and organize at the church or the mosque or the synagogue so yeah. I've been let, let me hop in there for, for, for a quick second because i think you're hitting on some important points i want to go deeper on this uh meeting people where they are point um, but before I do, just want to throw out a couple of resources that I think can be powerful for folks. Um, a, a lot of times we talk about uh, Angela Davis when we talk about uh, frameworks of abolition, and we should. Her book on uh, our prisons obsolete, I believe, is, is the title. It's a great resource. But I also just want to lift up quickly um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Her text on Golden Gulag is a wonderful place to begin and to go deeper in this abolitionist conversation. To your point, Linda, about meeting people where they are. Definitely want to make sure folks have access to resources that they can work with. Uh, du Bois's uh, Black Reconstruction, where he talks about abolition democracy uh, and connects uh, what happens in many respects in a carceral frame to a much wider uh, move to uncaged society. Uh, but let's, let's dig on this question of meeting people where they are, because sometimes there's religious uh, resistance to, to abolition, how we address it. And, and, and my sense has always been, Linda, in conversations with folks and, and moving on this issue, is that sometimes folks of, of faith who are otherwise invested in justice are also invested in the idea of uh, police or uh, corrections officers as divinely appointed guardians of law and order. Uh, which is an idea that, that obviously kind of brushes up against abolition a bit. And so given this reality, uh, how might faith traditions provide resources for um, kind of abolishing this kind of law and order religion, we, we might call it, uh, with compassion, with gentleness, uh, but also moving away from that and towards a more um, emancipation-oriented faith? How, how can we take that journey? I believe again wholeheartedly that all of our faith traditions have a liberation theology. It's about how we are able to manifest that and and be and make it translatable to uh, our communities. I think again, you know, when we talk about, I think about the way different kind of stories um, and 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 some of the uh, scriptures that we have um, as Muslims. And that's really again, this is why I'm in this work. I'm not in this work because I'm from Brooklyn. You know, I am from Brooklyn for sure, and that's a very important part of my identity. I come from yeah. the, to this work because I'm a Muslim. I believe that, you know, oftentimes we like to talk about different faith traditions and say, you know, they are, you know, like people, you will see this and you probably heard this in my community, um, Andrew, that people will say, Islam is a religion of peace. I'm not really moved by that. You know, I'm not saying it's not true. I believe that Christianity and Buddhism and Sikhism and, Jude and, and uh, Christianity and all faiths, if, if practiced, um, 
you know, it, 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 from a place of love, are religions of peace. I truly believe that. Um, yeah. But that's not what moves me about Islam. What moves me about mm. Islam is that it's a religion of justice. You can't have peace without justice. So you got to start from justice. Oh, my mind. And so for me, that's what that's where I come to this work. And so even when you think about, you know, doc, you know, a lot of times we talk about a lot about Dr. Martin Luther King, and he's a, in the in the in the in the mouths and on the posts of everybody. Come on, folks, from misusing atheists, his legacy. Listen, from the atheists to the Christians to the Jews to the Muslims to the everybody in between, and people often leave out that he was a man of God. He was a, he was a fa- he was a faithful man. He was a preacher. And so he came to this work as a Christian, as someone who believed in God and was working in that tradition. And many of those in the civil rights movement were people of faith, just like the Jewish sisters and brothers who came to the movement, our black Muslims that were involved in the movement, the Arab American workers that were involved, they all came from a faith tradition. And not a Dr. Martin Luther King. But, but, but also, Linda, just to hop in, you, you also have folks who came with, uh, in the language of, of Jeffrey Stout, religiously musical ethical traditions. So you have your A. Philip Randolph, the labor leader, mm-hmm. who, who comes, and for him, the world is about organizing at nature's banquet table so that we can build a working class movement capable of, of pulling justice into our reality. But, but just wanted to, to hop in with that. Yeah, keep, no, absolutely. Keep going. But I think, um, you know, this, this, the, the, right now, a question that I get oftentimes when I'm at, on a panel or something, I'm somewhere, people are always like, where are the people of faith at? Yeah. Where are they in the movement? We don't see them in the movement, right? And I always really get offended by that, that actually, that question. Mm. And I always say to people, what, what, what makes you ask that question? Why do you get to presume that mm. these young people who are out on these streets sacrificing their lives, like how mm. do you assume? In a pandemic, no less. In a pandemic. Listen, I just got tested on Sunday and I was negative. You know why? Because God was like, you're going to be negative because I need you out here in these streets. Come on, lift those hands. Listen, but, um, but, you know, a lot of times people ask us, you know, where are the people of faith? And there's a, there is a, a, an assumption that there is no faith in the movements that we are a part of. And I think to your point, um, faith means something different and can be explained differently about different people. I'm, when I'm on the street with these young people, God is in the street. These people see it as a form of worship that they are out here fighting for the sanctity of life that God created. And I know many of them are people who come from very, you know, traditional Christian homes. There's these young Jewish progressives running around in these streets with me, these young Muslims and these sisters in hijab out in the street, the sick brothers and sisters that are out in the street. And these are people who are coming to the spaces, to this work, because they believe that the way in which to profess their faith is to be out in the street. So just because you may not see them, see them at the church or just because they're not sitting in the back at the synagogue or they're not praying on their knees in the, in the mosque does not mean that our movements don't have faith. And I think it's important right. for people like you and me, Andrew, to make, keep making that point and for theirs to be uh, groups like religious uh, democratic socialists so people understand that the progressive religious left is here and we are in yeah. the streets every day and God is with us in the street every day. And it is our, and Jess Miller is saying this in the chat, and they are absolutely right. Protesting is the duty of a believer. We duty. as Muslims, moral imperative. Yeah, me, we, me as a Muslim, my faith tells me you gotta bear witness to injustice. Actually, my faith tells me that I am to stand up against injustice, even if it's against my own parents. So I could turn on my parents. I could call my parents out, and God will be proud my, of me my, for, my. for calling the woman whose womb I came from if she were to engage in an act of injustice in front of me. We all have that. <laughs> 
let, let, let's stick here though, because I, I think when the rubber hits the road, the, the, the question is, how do you take a passionate and inconvenient uh, stance for justice? Because everybody's for, for, or it is easy, let me put it this way, to stand for, for justice and to not be a bystander, but to stand up for justice, mm -hmm. right? right? I'm, I, I'm trying to in, in, invoke your wonderful writing. It's easy <laughs> to do that if you're with strangers, if you're with folk who you don't see every day. But when you're with family, colleagues, coworkers, somebody who lives in your apartment, it, it becomes a much different challenge when it's inconvenient and you're proximate to somebody who um, has a, a racist undertone, who uh, is pushing for economic systems that may benefit them but undertake you. So let, let's, let's turn there a bit. How do you stand for justice when it's a little inconvenient and close to you? Listen, you just gotta do it. And standing up against injustice, regardless who it's coming from, is just not easy. Because you know what, Andrew? If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. So you mm. know, that's just what it is. And, and I always say this to people too, I mean, not being a bystander, especially from a, coming from a faith tradition, all of our prophets weren't bystanders. Jesus right now, if Jesus was here today, he would be flipping tables left and right. He would be on the front lines. That's Shit, it, that's be, it. He'd be burning down some buildings for all I Set, Setting captives free, doing what it takes. Yep, he would be out here fighting for the sex workers. He would be out here in the street talking about welcome the strangers and the immigrants, take the kids out the cages. He would be out here. That's who he was. He, he for me, was a... He was a Palestinian socialist Jew. That's what I think. That's what I believe about Jesus. Come on, exegete. Come on, exegete. But, but what I will say to your question about people I love, you know, I always say to my white allies in the movement, I love them dearly. And they are yeah, yeah, yeah. people out here in these streets with us. They put, out, put their skills forward. They be sitting with me at the table. They're like, Linda, what do we do? Where do we go? We ready to go. And I've had conversations with a lot of white allies. And I said to them, listen, I'm with you and I'm, I appreciate you being out here. But you know where the real courage is required? The real courage is for you to go talk to your grandpa, go talk to your mama, go talk to the guy down the street from your house, talk to your uncle, and really sacrifice relationships. It might mean, Andrew, that you got to go back and have these really courageous conversations with people in your family that may yeah. get you uninvited to Thanksgiving dinner, get you uninvited to Christmas. You got to do what you got. You got to put people that you love in a position where they have to be like, wait a minute, damn. I love Linda. She's my granddaughter. She's my niece. Like, am I really that bad of a person? Like to the point where I either uninvited her from a dinner or she decided not to even come and engage me because I would not sit here and open my heart and mind to mm. her. That's where the courage is because oftentimes, and you know this, Andrew, there's anti-black racism in all of our communities. Yep. Communities and Jewish communities. And, and including my people who are otherwise oppressed and made vulnerable in our Absolutely. society. I come from a, a, a very targeted community here in the United States of America. And I'm going to tell you, there is anti-Black racism in the communities that I come from. And I yeah. always say to people, I will never ask you to do something that I already haven't done or I'm not doing myself. You better believe in my community. I will take any pulpit. I will take any platform to talk to my community about how we unlearn the white supremacy we have learned in this country that has taught us about racial constructs, that taught us that somehow based on the color of the, our skin that we somehow become superior to black people or the fact that you come to America to work as hard as you can to have proximity to whiteness. I'm trying to have as much proximity to blackness. In fact, I'm going the whole opposite way because I believe truly, Andrew, that if all of us in America were committed to the liberation of black people in particular, 
all yeah. of us are going to be free. So we are, what we le- learn in America is to do the opposite, to go towards the proximity to whiteness. Yep. Making the gap between whiteness and blackness and people of color even wider, making more, we have contributed to more inequality in America. We have contributed to more racism in America, even though we think we didn't. We say we're not racist. We yep. call our immigrant families come to America with the idea that the whiter the people are, the more powerful they are, and the more access to them we want. And yeah. I think that if, when we come to our traditions from a liberation theology, we actually yeah. want to be with the most marginalized people. Because you know where Jesus was? He was with the poor. Jesus was with the sick. He was with the oppressed. He was with the most marginalized people. So if you really are coming from a faith tradition, let's go back to our original prophets, our original nobles, nobles people and see where they were. They were not yeah. hanging out with the powerful people. They were going up against Pharaoh. Who's going up against Pharaoh now? And that's where we, we have to try to appease Pharaoh in, in, in modern times. We want to appease those in power. The people in power work for me. That's how I look Stay at so. it. And you know, um, so powerful point. I wanted to speak to uh, a couple of uh, questions which have, have come up uh, so far uh, and wanted to move to one further topic before we, we transition more, more formally, uh, but, but had to just hop in on, on some of uh, the fire that, that, that you were sharing forth. Uh, the, the first thing to note is that so many of our uh, luminaries that we lift up themselves are inspired by folks from a range of faith traditions. And so one of the things I used to do when I was the uh, executive director of the Drum Major Institute, which King started as kind of like a get out of jail uh, fund for civil rights activists back in the day, um, is King was deeply inspired by Gandhi, right? And so King is talking about Satyagraha, he's talking about soul force, he's talking about Ahimsa, uh, which is the kind of nonviolent move. Uh, and this push to draw on Hinduism or Jainism, uh, the Abrahamic traditions, uh, helps us to weave a more inclusive garment of stories and symbols and songs for justice. And so I love the way that you were just talking about how when we call on our, our, our noble people and we call on our Jesus or whoever it is, uh, that we can lift up the ways that they're, they're pushing for justice. Uh, one of the questions that, that came up that I just want, want to hit a bit, uh, and then I'm going to give you, you, you the other one, Linda, before we go to, to the next topic. Uh, the question was asked, what sort of themes would you raise to someone uh, in a Christian context who's committed to capitalism and thinks some of this socialist uh, talk, uh, and I'm paraphrasing the question, may be like an incursion on uh, spiritual uh, traditions and not really emerging from the faith? Um, I saw somebody hollering in the chat, uh, the story of my experiments with truth, which is a great text by uh, Mohandas Gandhi that folks may want, want to take a look at. I, I read it as a teenager, it blessed my life back then. Uh, but here, here's what I would say to uh, someone who's committed to, to, to capitalism from a Christian context. I'd say, when you look at Acts 2, I'm just gonna take one passage, I'm gonna be in and I'll be out. Uh, Acts 2 talks about how uh, the second and the fourth chapter, how there were no needy persons among them because they held all possessions in common and they were sharing uh, among each other. Uh, essentially, it's a, almost a proto-Marxist formulation. Uh, folks, as they had ability and resources, put into a common pot and took out of that common pot in order to meet the needs of the people. Uh, and the text says, not my words, the text says it wasn't a needy person among them. So if we can prioritize need and prioritize a communal understanding of property assets and resources so that we can get rid of poverty, so that we can house folk when we have all these vacant properties in New York, Detroit, and so many other places, then we can move towards um, 
a more socialist economy in a way that emerges not only from Christian traditions, but from so many of these other traditions that um, we're talking about, Muslim traditions, Jewish traditions, um, Hindu traditions. Uh, and I'd even make the case that um, you, you have uh, an ethical melody that some of our atheist brothers and sisters can bring as well. Linda, I want to give you this question, and then we're going to talk about uh, how we move beyond reform to abolition. So you can, you can let your thoughts percolate down. I'm going to give you a bit of a preview. The, the question which I want to throw in your direction is, how do we have folks of faith, or rather support people of faith, already present attempts to not be as mesmerized by their imam, by their rabbi, by their pastor, and instead move more towards, uh, we can do this together in more decentralized and kind of horizontal way of organizing for, for justice? Mm -hmm. um, that's gonna be a long journey for us because, um, you know, um, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm very, as you all know, as a DSA member and someone who has been organizing in a decentralized way for a really long time, yeah. I love the aspect of leaderful movements and leaderless movement. Um, but I do actually uh, want to push back a little bit because yes, push I do, back, push. because I do believe that yes, we are, um, uh, there's, you know, that, that we don't have to follow one person that I absolutely do believe. But we also yeah. have to recognize that there are leaders amongst us. There's our, there are leaders of color. That's right. <laughs> in the DSA that we need to be following, that there are people who are from the most marginalized communities who I believe are closest to the problems and closest to the pain and trauma who uh, are gonna be closest to the solution and we gotta follow them. So this yeah. idea that somehow Huge we're, organizing principle. You know, we're running out in the streets like everybody's a leader, that's not really actually true. I mean, not everybody knows what they're doing. I mean, I think that we also have to pay homage to those who are trained in this work, people who yeah. are putting forth strategy, people who spend every waking hour organizing and building power. And I think it's important for us not to say that any one person is our leader, but to recognize the leadership. And for me, you know, and you know this, Andrew, like, you know, one of my leaders is Tamika D. Mallory. I, I got no shame. It doesn't make me less of a leader to say that I have, I follow a black woman and I follow black yeah. women in New York City and all over the country. And there are many um, people of color in the DSA a national organization and in our local chapters who are leaders. So this idea of lead, you know, we don't need that one leader, I, you know, I don't think we need a lead, one leader, but we got many leaders and we should be following those leaders. I think that um, there are, yeah. I think what we need to, to, to start really thinking and also holding our leadership accountable in the church in the synagogue and the mosque is that I say this to imams all the time and I do got some good imams out here in the streets of, of this country. Yeah. It's not enough for me, for you to be out here and on the, you know, membar every Friday talking to me about this and that I need to see you on the street too. So this yep. idea that everybody, people, if, in order for you to really be my leader in this moment, if you want to be a leader as a pastor, as a rabbi, as a temple leader, as an imam or whatever faith tradition you are, your people got to see you on the streets. And when your church starts, you know, seeing a dwindling attendance, don't blame it on the people, right? What are you doing? And my sometimes, mind. I mean, I want to go to, uh, I want to go to a, a, a mosque where my imam, when I look, I may be with him on Friday, but he, on Sunday, he with me out here in the protest. He's out here supporting yeah. the young people. He's out here feeding the hungry. He's out here doing service. And I think we are in a new era where people don't need organized religion. They don't need to go to a mosque. I don't need to go to a mosque to be a Muslim. I don't need to be at the church to be a Christian. And so 
I do believe we do, we have leaders. I think there are so many wonderful religious leaders. You know many of them, Andrew. You are one of those leaders. There are many in New York City who are on the front lines and rabbis and imams that I follow. Imam Talib Abdul Rashid, Rabbi Barra Elman, Rabbi Ellen Lipman. There's so many yeah, yeah, yeah. wonderful uh, folks uh, that that we follow. And guess what? The ones I just named. Guess where they be? In the street with the people. That's and it. so I hope that more of our religious leaders choose to not only preach, but also practice what they preach. Yeah. With the people. I just want to build on, on the point that you, you, you rose, a distinction really, because it was subtle, which is that there's a role for, um, because there's often a dichotomy between uh, a single charismatic leader and movements that uh, are decentralized and sometimes we romanticize them as completely decentralized. Whereas what you said, Linda, which I think is powerful, is leader for movements where it's not a single leader, but multiple leaders, if they're accountable, if they're dedicated, uh, if they're committed to unlearning, bias, prejudice, white supremacy, and instead moving towards growth, then we can have a rich tableau of leaders within a broader movement tradition. That's a beautiful formulation. I, I just had to, to draw that out because I love the way that, that, that you shared that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about um, moving beyond reform to abolition, uh, and then we'll swing wide the uh, per proverbial gates. Uh, so as folks are likely aware, uh, there's a lot of energy in this moment to rethink policing in light of the killing of uh, so many people. So this is just a partial uh, litany. Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDay, uh, and so many other uh, trans uh, siblings, uh, women, men, you name it. Uh, and so for seven weeks, uh, direct action and protests uh, have congealed to put police violence on everyone's radar, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we recognize that there's substantial energy, but not all of that energy is moving in the same direction, right? Uh, some of that energy moves in uh, a reformist direction of, you know, turn on your body cameras, let's make sure every cop has one, chokehold bans, civilian review boards, let's have the US Department of Justice Civil Rights Division open a consent decree and use the court as a lever against the police department. These reforms, while well intentioned, uh, and I also wanna know they're not insignificant, but they don't prevent harm, they don't stop the surveillance of our communities, and in some ways, they, they, one could argue, they may even exacerbate injustice because it looks like a step in the right direction and folks uh, can celebrate it, cut ribbons, throw murals on the street, but we may not necessarily have justice. I'm, I'm trying not to tell too targeted a story, but th there's a tradition and I, I want to acknowledge it. The other push of direction, which is defunding and demilitarizing police, uh, removing police presence from schools, uh, and then trying to make the connection between abolishing prisons and ICE so that we can reimagine safety uh, all across the board. Uh, and so again, I want to acknowledge that um, there's a rich debate to be had between these two poles. Uh, I wanna tell the story in, uh, in a generous direction while being upfront that I, I tend to tilt uh, abolitionists my, myself. Um, but Linda, I want to, to bring you in here. Can you talk about some of what you see from your perspective uh, as a writer, as an organizer, as uh, Emir was a leader in, the, in, in, in this movement, um, about the real world differences between police abolition and police reform in our communities. 
So there's quote there. I mean, listen, Lord have mercy. You just about to start <laughs> up right now, and I'm a lot of people hate me for this already. I mean, listen, the the the, the reforms that you mentioned. Um, let's let's use body cameras as one example. That one really bothers me. You think the police give a damn if they got body cams on and off? We watched George Floyd get murdered on video, where the police officer Derek Chauvin literally was looking the camera in the eye, yep. and he stayed sitting on George Floyd's neck. Body cameras have never stopped police officers from murdering black people. They just don't do that. So for me, there's two things. There's being on a pathway towards prison abolition that in the moment requires you to actually support transformative legislation, yeah. not some bullshit. The, the, non the non reformist reforms. Yeah. Exactly. So for example, I'll give you an example. I want everybody up here talking to me about ending qualified immunity across the country. And that means yeah. that when a police officer murders someone in our communities, they should be personally held responsible. They should be liable for that. If you are a police officer and you murder a black person and you know that you ain't gonna be liable for it, that your pension stays in place, that the city taxpayer dollars pay the civil suit law settlement, why, what, what deters you from killing people? If yeah. I, another transformative piece of legislation that we could be supporting it, this, this would have to be on a state level, is if a black person murders a, excuse me, if a police officer murders someone in our communities yeah. and they are sued civilly, the money should come out of the state police pension, not out of my taxpayer dollars. You better believe that you will have many more police officers stand up in the police department and be like, that brother ain't with us. That police officer ain't with us because no one wants their pension that they've worked for to be impacted. Because as we went before, this is a capitalist society and everything in this country in this moment revolves around money. So if you ain't hitting police departments and police unions in the pocket, it's just not going to work. Yeah. There are other transformative policies that could be worked on right now. And looking at policies like defund the police. Defund the police is the beginning, not the end. So when you look at a police department like the NYPD, $6 billion is how much the NYPD budget is. Did you know, Andrew, that the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, the Department of Transportation, the Depart Parks Department, and the Department of Education. Combined. Less combined all of them combined yep. are still less than the police department. Now, if and one of the things I believe, and I learned this terminology from the Reverend William Barber, your city budget, your town budget is a moral document. So if you tell me that your city budget leans toward, towards punishment, towards enforcement of the bodies of black and brown people. And that's where the money and your taxpayer dollars are going. I'm going to judge you and your moral and your values and your principles by your, by your budget. So for me, what I'm asking people to do is, even if you are not prepared to be an abolitionist where you cannot see what a world looks like without prisons, yeah, 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 yeah. Like without, without police, I'm not telling you that that world is coming tomorrow. The yeah. problem, that's the, an important the, point to, to lift up no but also one last thing i'll say is the reason why we don't have more abolitionists even within the communities that we come from including black and brown communities right andrew is because they have limited our imagination they have limited our imagination for us to be able to see beyond everything that we have been given everything that we see that happens around us for us to actually sit in a world where we could imagine what a world looks like that is full of compassion and restorative justice, 
a world and what safety actually means to us. You know, when I ask people what safety looks like, safety is not just about me walking down the street and not having to worry about being killed by a police officer or worry about being shot in a drive-by shooting or being mugged or raped. That's not what safety, that's not the first thing that comes to my mind. Yep. Safety for me means being able to ha feel full joy, to be able to have, to be financially stable and never have to worry about, uh, you know, money and having to worry about how I'm going to pay my rent or feed my kids. You know, safety is about being, feeling secure that my children are going to get a holistic education, that my children are going to be well embraced and loved for who they are in their entire totality. You know, safety for me is a community, communities who have infrastructure and have every, all access to equitable healthcare, have access to equitable education, where our children don't have to work harder based on their socioeconomic status or whether, or their race or religion or any other factor of who they are. That's safety for me. So imagine when people say, how could you live in a world without prisons and police? I said, listen, if, if we gave every, everybody a job that was sustainable, that mm -hmm. lifted their families, that allowed people to remove all those stresses from their bodies, um, where they can just live a life that is whole. When you bring infrastructure to communities, when you give people access and they're allowed to not just survive, I don't want people to survive, which is how most Americans live. I want people to thrive. When people are in a place of thriving, that's it, to thrive and flourish. Down. And you know what? It makes our hearts more compassionate. And you know what? Will there be people who do wrong amongst us? Of course, because we come from traditions where we know that we are all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all going to do things that are wrong. But you know what? We're going to come to a time where we can imagine a world where no one is beyond redemption. That's it. That's and it. That's but, the world I want to be a part of. Uh, deep agreement. Deep agreement. As, as you say that, I think of uh, a, a dear scholar's work, um, Robin D.G. Kelly, who has a book called Freedom Dreams, uh, which is an essential text for pushing the borders and expanding the margins of our imagination so that we can begin to uh, envision something much more than the world that we have. A, a couple of um, uh, quotes I want to share just to kind of maybe tie this section up and then we're going to move formally into to, to Q&A. Uh, one, I want to underscore uh, Linda's excellent point about budgets. Um, one of the things I, I, I teach my policy students sometimes is that a budget is a statement of values in the language of dollars and cents. Mm. It's, it's an often used phrase, but it's a quick phrase to get the point across that we're not just talking about fiscal policy. We're talking about the struggle to create a values-based society in a radical, restorative sort of sense. Uh, but the second thing to, to lift up is that I think it's important to grapple with, um, and I love the way that you've been talking about uh, it, Linda, as justice as a concern for today that's rooted in uh, what um, someone like, like, like King and in many ways Ella uh, Joe Baker would talk about this as well, a kind of fierce urgency of now. And so we need to be pushing for the kind of justice that we can secure in this moment uh, and make a bridge between the future that we want and deserve tomorrow and drag that future into the present today. Um, so let, let me queue up a question. One has already come in. Uh, we want to take questions from folks. You can use the Q&A section of uh, the chat box. Uh, some of the questions are already coming in. Uh, Y'all have been uh, wonderfully engaged and we want this to be an interactive uh, conversation. So the first question that came to the table, uh, Linda, you talked about um, uh, living in a world of, of, of redemption and safety. Uh, so the question uh, that has come through is, uh, how do we um, hold people accountable for harms that they commit or for a crime 
if we live in a world uh, without police? So that's a really important question. It's a question for many people who are for many people who are not yet, you know, uh, or or do not yet see the the road to abolition um, in the sense that they say to themselves, wait a minute, you know, how someone, you know, murdered somebody, somebody committed an act of rape, someone did, you know, how could it be possible um, for us to not to live in a world right now without policing and without um, you know, prisons. The first thing that I will say first about the policing issue in this moment is that the reason why we have so many people who have been killed at the hands of police is because police are showing up to jobs that actually do not match their qualifications. There is no reason for police to be called. There is no reason for you to use 911 to call the police if there's someone who's mentally ill that's about to harm someone or harm themselves, right? There is no reason for you to call the police to report someone who's homeless. The police have nothing to offer a homeless person. There is no reason for the police to be in our schools amongst our children who are trying to learn and trying to become better people and try to explore their identities. There's no reason for cops with guns to be in our schools. Mm -hmm. So there's, for when you, when you start thinking about all the reasons police get called, a dispute between you and your neighbor, for example, because you and a, someone had a fight with about a parking spot and then you call the cops and the cops come, you know, or you had a little scuffle and you're, you, you hit a guy in the back of his car and all of a sudden the cops come. The presence of cops always builds tension and exasperates issues that could be dealt in other ways. And so, so again, the cops are showing up to, to do jobs that are not matching their qualification. They're not educators, they're not social workers, they are not mental health professionals, they are not arbitrators. Um, they're just, that's just not what they were trained to do. So yeah. we need to minimize police as much as possible. And in the meantime, police should be called for the things that they are trained to do, which is if someone is about to be harmed or has been harmed. And unfortunately, what people don't remember about police is, guess what, they come after the fact. They don't come to prevent harm. harm. Harm is almost always has happened when the cops are called. And so anyway, so that's, so that's the kind of initial conversation I have with people about the police, um, that they're, yeah. when you think about it, they're actually in most cases not necessary. And many, 95% of the reasons why people call the police, as we have seen with the Karens that decide to call the cops on black people. My mind, my mind. Let, let, let me hop in, there was a, um an article in the New York Times that talked about, uh, it was a survey of three or four cities and they looked at the call volume that police respond to. Uh, it's maybe New Orleans and a few other um, large to mid-sized cities. What they found is that um, less than 5% of the calls that police were responding to were issues of um, harm to the body, you know, really strong sorts of crimes that I think most folks might, might, might think about. Um, instead, it was the kind of things that you mentioned, Linda, that folks weren't trained for. It's uh, emergency response, it's mental health, it's uh, mediation and things that ought to be pulled apart from the police department and migrated to uh, community health centers and to those who have the expertise um, and the trained judgment to better deal with those issues. And so I um, appreciate the way that you, you pulled that apart. Uh, and one and quickly about prisons sure. and do commit severe what people would 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 consider to be severe. might regard as that yep. um you know i i was i was just in kentucky so i just got arrested and i was um i, I was transferred to the department of corrections in louisville kentucky and let me just tell you andrew i'm not made for prison i was in a cell in louisville kentucky and i'm not gonna lie to you like right now my neck is killing me not because i was brutalized by a police officer it was because I spent 20 hours in prison. I, at some point I fell asleep. I'm sleeping yeah. on a hard concrete bench in prison. 
um, they expected me to use the bathroom uh, in a in a in a toilet that was uh, where there was a window looking in at the toilet that I was supposed to use. And then I was supposed to drink water in a pandemic out of the, out of a fountain connected to a toilet in a pandemic, you know, mm, just the dehumanization of a process that I only went through for 20 hours. I don't know how we expect for a prison to rehabilitate somebody, right? Yep. Who committed a severe act. If you, if someone did something so horrific, there has to be an origin for that. How do we rehabilitate, re rehabilitate someone? Prison is not a place of rehabilitation. It's not a place that makes someone who did something so egregious a better person. In fact, yeah. what prison does often to people, it may, when they come out into the world, they might be worse than when they got in there in the first place. So what I tell the people, it's not that I want to take power out of the hands of the victim. It's not that we don't want to hold people accountable. There are restorative justice methods that center the victim, that center the victim, their feelings and their harm and their pain and their trauma to then take a person that did, committed that harm, oftentimes or, that originated also in some historical pain and trauma that they had or some cyclical experiences that they've had that then made them commit that, that egregious crime, help put them in a rehabilitation services that keeps them away from the victim, yeah. that puts them through a process that gives them mental health services, that gives them an opportunity for some sort of redemption, for some to make some sort of commitments, right? to the victim and to the world and to their families and others. We do not do that in our current prison system. Our prison system is a place that cages people, dehumanizes them, makes them feel like, you know, honestly, I'm not gonna even say makes them feel like animals because we actually treat animals better than we do prisoners in America. My, 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 my. What I'm just saying to people is that you can argue with me that we need prisons, but if you've never been in a prison, if you've never been in prison, and you do not understand that there is a big, uh, 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 you know, recidivism. Like there's people that keep going in and out of prison. That must tell you something, something about the prison system. So I don't believe that there, there, and maybe it's not abolition. Maybe there's something else. I don't know. I believe in abolition, but it definitely, prisons is definitely not the solution. That's yeah. how you make somebody better. That's a, a powerful point. I uh, want to get a, a few uh, more questions on the table. They're starting to, to pour in uh, and, and just appreciate you really walking through in, in narrative form what restorative justice looks like. Because the question in many ways of how do you move from law and order religion and punitive justice doesn't mean we let go of justice and accountability. It means we instead migrate to restorative justice in ways that are rooted in rehabilitation uh, and establishing authentic uh, bonds that can uh, reparatively addressed uh, instead of carcerally addressing some of the challenges in our community. So beautiful point you lifted up. One person ha has raised the question, um, I want to have this conversation, um, conversation meaning uh, to help imagine a world without capitalism, without prisons, without uh, police in our schools. Uh, and I uh, want to have the conversation not in, uh, you know, New York or San Francisco, coastal areas that may um, uh, traditionally, you know, vote blue, so on and so forth. But I want to have it in South Carolina, right? Uh, what does it look like to point to religious resources in, in that context? Um, so I'll uh, just quickly make this point and then want to bring you in, Linda. Uh, Maxine Phillips, who is a, a steadfast leader with um, uh, religious socialism, pointed to a pamphlet uh, she shared with me years ago that um, the Black theologian James Cone put together on the Black church and Marxism. Uh, and Cone is revered as... Uh, talking about liberation being at the center, uh, not just in many ways of Christian faith, but of um, radical religion generally. And so that pamphlet, which uh, DSA put out some years ago, 
uh, maybe that's something that we can push out to folks on this call, uh, like the, the person who rose the question about how do we have tangible resources we can use to imagine a world beyond police, prisons, and capitalism. But we'd also love to hear you uh, take that question as well, Linda. What kind of faith resources can we, we point to for that? Um, there are many resources that come out of um, Groundswell, which is part of Auburn Seminary. I'm an Auburn Seminary fellow with the Reverend Barber um, is in my class, as well as um, uh, Jew, you know, other Jewish progressives and Reverend Jackie Lewis, who you know from the Middle Collegiate Church and um, so many others who are on the front lines of writing articles and books and about uh, Brian McLaren and others who have written about social justice and different faith traditions. I mean, for me, um, just because I'm just going to plug it anyway, because that's what I'm supposed to do according to my um, editor. and Please plug it. Please. My book, We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders, is a story of a Muslim American organizer, and that is me. And it comes from me choosing and deciding to not be a bystander based on my faith tradition. You know, and it's a story of our Muslim communities here in the United States of America, what we have endured, but also what we have persevered based, based on the ways and the teachings of our faith. So there are many elements of my book around um, not just, you know, my organizing work with which a lot of people separate, you know, from my Islam. You know, I always tell people I'm an organizer that's a Muslim and I'm a Muslim that's an yeah. organizer can't take separate those two things for me. Um, yeah. Someone said James Cone, um, rest his soul. Like there's so many people in our, uh, you know, in our tradition, in our history um, that that have, that their, whose stories are, are all rooted really for, in their faith. They come to this work from Heschel, um, you know, there's uh, even, you know, yeah, our, yeah, yeah. the writings of the Reverend Barber um, and so many folks. I mean, Valerie Core, who has a wonderful text on a book that she just wrote on their um, uh, No Strangers. Uh, there are so many, you know, the, the writings you've written, um, Reverend Andrew in the Huffington Post and your, your kind of writings that you put out. I think those are really, um, there's a lot of important voices right now. Um, can, can I ask you about, about your text in, in particular? Um, because you, you make a connection in the subtitle that I think is important on just a really human level. Why did you call it a memoir of love and resistance? Because I think people have taken the love out of resistance. When they, when people see resistance, the resistance has been criminalized, mm. right? The, the resistance is angry. You know, the resistance is enraged. Mm. And I always say to people that um, uh, my anger comes from love. My resistance mm. comes from love. And so if you're not angry, you must not love somebody, right? I'm angry at injustice because I love my community. I love my family. I love my movement family. And so I try to make the connection between this idea is that we resist in these streets, not because we're hopeful for a better future, but because we love. And mm. one, one of the things about hope in particular, we talk, a lot of faith people talk about hope. I don't necessarily believe in, a, in this idea of hope. I think hope is like a mirage. Like you can't see hope, but you could feel love. I know when I love, I know who I love. And it's very clear to me. And so I say to people that for us as faith people, God is love. So I always say to people that, I know I that the day that I stop loving is the day that I stop believing in God and vice mm. versa. When I stop believing in God, it means because I stopped loving. So for me, my connection to me is that my resistance comes from love. I'm angry, but the inside of my heart is all mm. love. And we all have to be and understand that the people in these streets that are willing to die and putting their bodies on the line on these streets is simply because they love because they love their black brothers and sisters, right? They love their black mother. They love their black father. They want to live in a world 
that values the sanctity of all life because God created all life. God didn't create just the white people and some other God and created the black people. God created all life. So if we are going to be a true people of God, if we are true people of faith, until all of God's creation is loved and all of God's creation's embraced. And what I do know, Andrew, mm-hmm. is God loves everybody. So if God loves everybody, how do you get to pick who you love and who you fight for and who you elevate and who, you, who gets to survive? And that's why socialism, in fact, when you think about it, is really deeply rooted in love. Come socialism, on. Come says, on. socialism says, why do they get to have and you don't get to have? And why do they get to have at the backs of those people? That's, socialism is not about everybody just stays poor and we all get the same things. Socialism says we all have access, we all thrive, we have ownership over our labor, and we equalize society because God intended for us all to be equal. He created us all to be loved, to be perfect. We are all perfect. I don't care if you're a person with a disability. I'm about about to pass the plate around at this point. Listen, I'm just saying, (laughs) that's the truth. God is love. God wants us all to be loved, and he created every single one of us perfect i don't care who you are what you are what you look like what ability you have what disability you have you are perfect and that's why how i want i want to treat the world how god wants everybody to, to be treated and i know that god wants everybody to be loved absolutely that, that that's a, a a beautiful excursus on uh love and resistance and how uh god's intentions of of love and equality uh and, and really abundance right because so often it's a theology of scarcity that we don't have enough that uh, our budgets will burst or deficit mongering politics uh, rather than modern monetary theory, just to put God a quick God plug. of abundance. God of abundance. Uh, S- Stephanie Kelton's work uh, would recommend it highly to you all. But then th- there's also the, the, the wider question of thinking through what it means to kind of reclaim uh, some of the specific contributions that folks of, of faith have made to the socialist tradition. Uh, and a couple of uh, resources that I think kind of really lay out that narrative in helpful ways. Uh, and then would love if maybe we have uh, one or, or, or two more questions folks might lift up. Uh, I'm thinking of, of, of Gary Dorian's uh, excellent work uh, on the new abolition, uh, where he talks about W.E.B. Du Bois and the Black social gospel. He then followed that up with uh, Breaking White Supremacy, uh, looking at MLK and, and Black social gospels. Uh, but then if, if we widen the camera out a bit more, uh, and I love your point, Linda, that you rose about uh, socialism, not about uh, kind of uh, universalizing uh, poverty, which is a, a kind of misconstrual that some folks have. But instead, it's about uh, reclaiming the commons and the wealth that, that folks have already uh, produced and, and given life to in, in the first place. Um, we, we could go on and on on this uh, p- particular theme. Uh, but the, the, the last thing that I want to, uh, to lift up before um, issuing a call to action is to note that of, um, I appreciate you uh, calling that out, uh, Maxine. Uh, Gary Dorian has been a longtime uh, DSA member uh, and has a book coming out on the democratic socialist tradition. I, I think it's important to note that um, folk of color have also, and of faith, have contributed to democratic socialist traditions because oftentimes there's a misconception that this is um, something that, you know, Bernie bros, or that it's only uh, white folks who read Jacobin. Uh, and I love uh, Brother Baskar. He's, he's a wonderful brother. I had many conversations with him. Uh, but it's, it's a tradition rooted in people of, of, of color as well, people of, of faith. Uh, and uh, one other voice that I would lift up um, before doing a kind of call to action, and then Linda would love for you to issue 
uh, a kind of charge and summons to, to folks as well. Uh, I think in particular of the work of um, Manning uh, Mirable, uh, who wrote um, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America, as well as uh, Race Reform and Abolition. And though a historian, uh, also wrote a great biography on Malcolm X. In many ways, this kind of deep faith in humanity uh, undergirds his faith and, and don't want to leave out the rich uh, traditions of, uh, of ethical humanism that in many ways power uh, a kind of spirituality uh, as it relates to socialism. Uh, so uh, we, we'd like to have these monthly conversation series. I know this is the first one. So excited to, to do it in concert and collaboration with you, uh, Linda. Maxine for the win, Manning Marable. Uh, God bless her. So it was also a DSA member. So, so that's the way of just saying welcome to the family. It's a cookout of sorts, basically. Uh, and we want to invite you to get your red cup and your plate of whatever uh, and to join us uh, and become a member of uh, the Democratic Socialist of America. There's a variety of dues paying options. Um, there's a, a sliding scale uh, that you can use to figure out what works for you. I would be remiss and, uh, and not in uh, fitting order, if I didn't say, go get Linda Sarsour's book, We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders, uh, a memoir of love and resistance. It will bless you. It will uh, change and rearrange how you think about this work of justice. And love the point that she made about uh, anger being uh, something that emanates from this deep love, this connectivity. In many ways, this kind of communion that we have with all folks who breathe life that, that God has kind of bequeathed to them. Um, and uh, I don't only want you to uh, join DSA, but also, or wherever you may be, you, you might want to join Until Freedom. Uh, they're doing phenomenal work as well. Um, but for, for those who are working under whatever uh, banner, make sure that you get involved in working towards police and prison abolition. Uh, want folks to know how you can follow um, Religious Socialism on Twitter. Uh, it's Religious Socialism, R-E-L-I-G, Socialism. Uh, the Insta handle is Religious Socialism. Uh, the Facebook is Religious Socialism as well. Um, our next monthly conversation will be in mid-August on a Thursday, uh, potentially August 20th. Uh, hold that time. Uh, we'll be in touch with more information as we get close to the date. Uh, this conversation was recorded, um, so we'll share it on the socials once it's ready. Um, and folks feel free to, you know, put in the chat what other themes or, or whoever else you might want us to be in conversation with. Uh, Linda, I, I can't um, say what a deep delight and joy it was to be uh, in dialogue and conversation with you. Uh, you want to give us some, some, some closing words and a, and a, a rhapsodize a bit. Give us a call to action. Um, you know, I'm just going to say, first of all, thank you. And thank you to um, you, Andrew, and all the work. And you're a very powerful voice. And I'm so proud to know you and to also follow your leadership. Thank you to our DSA family who's on this Zoom with us uh, tonight. Um, I am grateful for all of you. Everything that you said, really, Andrew, I mean, freedom is not free. If we want to build the world we want to live in, we got to pay for it. Um, that also is part of it, being able to support the work of the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm a proud monthly dues-paying member. I put my money where my mouth is and that's really important. I just want people to stay unapologetic. You know, we have lived in a society that for too often has told us respectability politics that we have to conform. We have to change our words because other people may seem uncomfortable. And what I love about DSA is we're just calling things as we see them, you know, defund the police, abolish ICE. You know, we're saying the things that need to be said. And I want to just say to people that 
seven years ago, we were talking about healthcare for everyone. Everyone was like, y'all are all crazy. Then Bernie ran the first time and everyone was like, stop saying this nonsense about Medicare for all. You're going to mess this all up and no one's going to talk about it. And while Bernie may not have won uh, the election, but everybody talks about Medicare for all. For God's sakes, today I saw Joanne Reed talking about, yeah, I was a skeptic, but I'm all in for Medicare for all. So just say, stay rooted in your values and principles. Even if you're the only one standing up for something, stay standing on your own. Trust me, people will come because people come and will gravitate toward, toward the truth. We're in, we're in some hard times, Andrew, right now, but I just yeah. want people to stay whole, stay brave, stay consistent. Um, I promise you the, the best is yet to come, and that is going to come at, uh, because of our work and because of the commitment of the DSA and the DSA members around the country. And I'm in this. I got your back. Uh, you know, support local organizations, support Black-led organizations, support immigrant-led organizations. Support That's it. That's it. Give them space in your chapters. Uh, and, 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 and remember when someone, say that, say that. when you look around the table, if someone's missing, it's not their pro problem. It may mean that you got to go where they're at, you know, go knock on the local mosque door and just say, Hey, how you doing? What's your name? Go to the local synagogue and say, Hey, how you doing? What's your name? Go to the local black peach and say, Hey, how you doing? Talk to them, have a conversation, build relationships. Social media has disconnected us from human beings. And I'm an old school, traditional organized UBC. I'm still on the streets right now. No pandemic keeps me off the streets. Just, just stay together stay committed, pick up the phone and call people, see pe folks in the street and let's just build, build, build because we are coming on something historic and we're going to get to look back, Andrew, and say we were alive and we That's were it. out on the streets and we were doing the work. So I appreciate you all and may God bless you all and protect you and hope to see you on the streets very soon. God, God bless you. Appreciate you as well. Um, right before we hop off, somebody was in the chat um, and they rose an important point about questions that weren't yet answered. Just want to reassure folks that um, the chat as well as the Q&A will be saved. So we'll get to your questions um, uh, via email on your socials. Yep. Send um, me some too. And I promise that I will um, answer some and maybe we can send it back out as part of the uh, mail out to the folks that get the recording. That, that, that would be beautiful. I do want to give just a super lightning response to someone who wrote a question about what does socialism have to do with, with wealth for folks who... Um, are concerned about the immediate livelihood. Uh, I think there's four policies that try to address that directly um, that we can't elaborate because we, we about to uh, do whatever it is we have to do for the rest of the evening. One is public banking. Look to California as um, a, a leader in some respects there to fund things that traditional banks may not fund and that community, that credit unions may not have the capacity to fund, but public banks is a strategy there. Uh, worker cooperatives, uh, community land trust as a direct response to gentrification. Uh, and then fourthly, uh, we're not going to get anywhere we need to go without recovering the militants of labor unions that are inclusive and are social movements uh, and not just for their members. So hopefully that's a, a partial response to what you share. God bless y'all. Have a good night. Uh, Linda, again, wonderful to be in conversation with you and everyone will be in touch soon. Take care, everyone. Thank you.